0: Before we begin this morning, I'd like to share a a brief clip with you from a great movie that came out in 2010 called True Grit. It was a remake of the old John Wayne classic, and what you're about to see is the opening scene from this movie, just to kind of get us started today. So please uh, turn to the screen behind me.
1: I'll give it credence that a young girl could leave home and go off in the wintertime to avenge her father's blood but it did happen i was just 14 years of age when a coward by the name of tom cheney shot my father down and robbed him of his life and his horse and two california gold pieces that he carried in his trouser band cheney was a hired man and papa had taken him up to fort smith to help lead back a string of mustang ponies he had bought in town Cheney had fallen to drink, and cards, and lost all his money. He got it into his head he was being cheated, and went back to the boarding house for his Henry rifle. When Papa tried to intervene, Cheney shot him. Cheney fled. He could have walked his horse, for not a soul in that city could be bothered to give chase. No doubt Cheney fancied himself scot-free, but he was wrong. You must pay for everything in this world one way and another. There is nothing free except the grace of God.
0: So there are two things that that uh, scene makes me think about. The Wild West and the Gospel. And the reason I showed it to you, really, it wasn't so much about the depth of content of the scene as as it is about just getting us thinking about what the free grace of God means for us. And by the way, when we talk about the Gospel of Jesus Christ, we're not talking about the, the four books of the Bible that give us a historical account of Jesus' life, the Gospels. We're talking about the message of the good news. We're talking about grace for sinners. That's Grace for sinners, I think, is the simplest definition of the gospel I could give you. Grace for sinners. That's the gospel. And today we're going to talk about the gospel. And every once in a while, a fresh vision for the gospel sort of emerges and inspires me, and so today I want to look at a passage in the New Testament with you that really inspired me this past week, and it moved me to share the gospel with you in a way that I never have before. Even though we talk about the gospel every single week, today's going to be, I hope, a, a, a unique message of the gospel of Jesus Christ and, and how it changes the way that we live, and my hope today is that you leave here with a vision for living a gospel-centered life that is enlarged. That's my hope for today. And the big idea this morning is that following Jesus leads to a rugged, wide-open life. Following Jesus leads to a rugged, wide-open life. And I'd like to turn your attention to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20. We're going to start there. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20. I'll be reading from the ESV. Please follow along with me if you have your Bibles. This is the Apostle Paul writing to one of the churches that he planted in the region of Corinth, or maybe a few churches. He writes, Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ be reconciled to God. Be reconciled to God. The gospel is about God and sinners being reconciled. You've heard that phrase before. It's in one of our favorite Christmas hymns, isn't it? God and sinners reconciled. That's what the gospel is about. It's about what God has done to bring sinners back to himself. One of my favorite passages in the entire Bible is a, it gives us a picture of God and sinners being reconciled. It was a parable that Jesus taught in the, in the gospel of Luke Chapter 15, the parable of the prodigal son is what it's most commonly called. And while most of you probably are familiar with that parable, I'll just give you a brief summary in case you aren't. Jesus tells a story about a father who had two sons, and his younger son decided to take his inheritance early and leave home, which was unheard of in those days. It was dishonoring to his father. And so he left home, and he went to a foreign country, and he lived hard and fast, for a while until he had nothing left he, he wasted everything he had he lived recklessly and one day he came to his senses and he realized that he had made some poor choices and he began to feel regret and he decided to go back home and he he didn't think for a minute that his father would take him back as a son or forgive him for what he'd done because he'd brought shame to his father's name so he just, he devised a plan that he was going to negotiate a deal with his father that he might be able to work for his father as a hired servant and maybe earn his way just, just to have room and board on his father's property. So he goes back home, and we're told that even when he was a long way off from home, his father runs out to meet him and embraces him. And before the, the son can even begin negotiating with his father, his father stops him, and he says son, I love you, Sir, I want my hired servants to go get all of my best stuff, and you can have it, I'm, I'm, I'm going to take you back, you're my son. And so the father gives his best robe, and he puts a signet ring on the son, and he welcomes him back as a son, he throws a huge party, the whole town's invited to celebrate the return home of his lost son. And that is probably the most moving picture of reconciliation I've ever heard. That one parable has changed my life many times over. It has changed the way I relate to God. And and I think the most powerful thing about the story is that Jesus told the story to two different groups of people. The first group of people were the sinners, the tax collectors, the prostitutes, everyone whose lives were totally messed up. The second group of people listening were religious Jews who lived a very devout and devoted, devoted, faithful life to God and who believed that they were good people that God was going to accept someday because of their status, because of their obedience. And, and of course, the second group of people, or the I should say the, the sinners who were there listening, they were sure that they were unacceptable to God because their lives were messed up and full of failures and disappointments. And Jesus was telling both groups, God is waiting for you to come home. He's longing for you. He wants to be with you to share unbroken intimacy, He loves you more than you can imagine. He even likes you. Many people have a hard time wrapping their minds around the idea that God likes them or that God could like them. I mean, maybe God loves me, but only because he has to, only because he promised to. He doesn't like me very much, I'm pretty sure, because I've disappointed him. I haven't followed through. I haven't done right. I've wrestled with that many times. Maybe you have too. But if reconciliation is what we're calling people to, then it means that every person's greatest problem in life is their broken relationship with God. That's every person's greatest problem, is that they're alienated from God, estranged from God. They've chosen to leave God. They've become hostile to God. They've willingly rejected God's rule in their life and chosen a different, wider path to find life. The prodigal son is everyone's story. You know, even the older son in the story who stayed home and worked diligently, even he rejected the father in the end. The father invited him into fellowship, into the feast, and he would have none of it. He said, I've been working hard for you my whole life, and you never gave me a party like this. I don't want any part of this anymore. It was the younger son who was reconciled. So the truth is, no one chooses God Nobody does. We all have to come to our senses. We all have to experience the surprising and even scandalous grace of God. Every one of us needs to be reconciled. We all have to put ourselves in the story and believe that God not only loves us but actually likes us and wants to be with us. And here's the amazing thing. God wants to do this incredible act of reconciling sinners to himself through us. (coughs) Ordinary people. God is using his church to plead with people, to come back to him, to find life in him. And this is a deeply personal mission. This is the language of this text in no way lends to the method of, you know, going around with a card or a tract and just handing things to people or or, or reciting questions or spiritual laws to people, soliciting some response, and then walking away when those people don't give you the right response. This is about gospel witness in everyday life. This is about relationships. It's about loving people who are far from God and being available and vulnerable to them. And even inviting them to be part of your journey with God. Creating an openness for questions and doubts and skepticism and honest communication. This is about us accepting people who are not like us. And inviting them close to to see what God is really like through your words and your deeds. Even if your words and deeds, you don't think they're even if you don't think they're good enough. We're not we're not trying to be something we're not. We're not trying to prove to people that God turned me into the most well-behaved person in our neighborhood. I mean, that's not at all what the gospel is. The gospel is grace for sinners. That's what we're inviting people to see. This is and, and so what I'm trying to tell you is this isn't simply about proclaiming a message while that's vital. This is about becoming a reconciler. It's about becoming an ambassador. God does the reconciling. We are his ambassadors. We represent him. We're his instruments for reconciliation. And maybe the most remarkable thing about this gospel, this good news, is that God reconciles people to himself not on the basis of anything that they do or because of who they are, God reconciles sinners to himself on the basis of who he is. He does it because he loves them. And there is seemingly no explanation for why he loves us or them. It's just that God is love. That's why he loves. There's a a passage in Deuteronomy 7 where God explains why he chose Israel. Israel. And he says, I chose you, he's speaking to the nation of Israel, and he says, I didn't choose you because you were anything special or because you're the most, strong, most powerful nation or the biggest nation. In fact, you're the most insignificant nation on the planet. I chose you because I love you. I love you because I love you. That's what he said. It's just because I love you. And they didn't do anything to earn his love. <laughs> So God is our good Father. He's full of grace. He is righteousness and mercy and justice. He's full of compassion, and He loves to reconcile wayward sinners to Himself. And every time it happens, at the end of uh, or, or um, in Luke in Luke chapter fifteen, we're told a couple of times that every time a sinner comes back into God's presence, any time a lost sinner is found by God, there is abundant rejoicing in heaven. It it brings God joy. Now, the question, of course, is how is God able to do this without violating his own holiness? How can God declare a sinner to be righteous? There's a problem there, isn't isn't there? How can God do that? The next verse tells us how reconciliation is possible. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21. This is a very well-known verse. It says this. For our sake, he made him, God made Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin so that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. That's what the verse says. And I remember years ago, many years ago, when I was a leader in in PALS, in our WANA program, I was a leader um, in PALS. We used to be our third, fourth, and fifth grade boys, and now it's third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth, sort of together. And I remember my good friend Dave Gus was a leader too, and we were talking one night after PALS, and the boys, we have a, a time during the night where the boys memorized bible verses and second corinthians 5:21 is in all the books and this 8-year-old boy was reciting second corinthians 5:21 to my friend Dave and he he paused when he was finished and he said what does that mean what does it mean that Jesus became sin for us he asked this question in all sincerity i wonder if we sometimes pause to think about what that means and i don't remember what dave said i don't know what i would have said But I do know now that for Jesus to become, I mean, if Jesus never sinned, how can he become sin? Right? An eight-year-old is able to wrestle with this theologically. It means that Jesus took our place as our substitute. That's what it means theologically. Jesus became our substitute on the cross. In other words, on the cross, Jesus became like an adulterer to bring adulterers into God's presence in righteousness. He became like a murderer. Jesus became like a liar, like a righteous righteous Pharisee even, like a thief, like an embezzler. He became like an addict, like a pedophile, like a proud, arrogant person so that all those kinds of people could have peace with God through faith in the gospel of Jesus. Jesus was crucified instead of you and me. So that when we put our trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins, he takes the burden of our sin. He bears the punishment and judgment that we deserve. He bears the Father's wrath so that when Jesus was on the cross, God the Father turned his face away from Jesus. The whole land became pitch black to represent the Father's abandonment of his Son on the cross. Jesus was judged there in our place. And do you know what we get in return? Righteousness. We're clothed in his righteousness. We get mercy. We get new life. We become the righteousness of God. That's grace for sinners. That's the gospel. Is that not the best news you've ever heard? That by grace through faith, we are free. We are forgiven. We are righteous in God's eyes. That's the good news. The the gospel is the good news that God makes sinners righteous. It's the good news that God makes sinners righteous. In other words, through faith in the death and resurrection of Jesus, God says to you, and he will say to you, if anyone accuses you on that final day, God will say to you, not guilty. Because you are clothed and covered in the righteousness of our Savior Jesus. Jesus. We don't have to fear the wrath to come. Your sin will never define you again. Not even death can hold you. You will be raised to new life with a new body in the presence of your Savior, Jesus. Now, we could have stopped there, and many times teachers do because there's so much in those couple verses. But we're going to go into chapter 6 because the Apostle Paul, he's writing this to his church He begins talking about what we should do or how we should live in response to this good news. This news, this gospel, demands a new kind of life. It produces a new kind of life in anyone who believes it. And so we're going to catch a glimpse of that this morning. Beginning in chapter 6, verse 1, he goes on. Working together with him then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, in a favorable time I listened to you, and in a day of salvation I've helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. We put no obstacle in anyone's way so that no fault may be found with our ministry. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way. And now Paul tells us, I'm going to pause here. Now Paul's going to tell us what gospel living is all about. This is what he says. By great endurance, in afflictions, hardships, calamities, "...beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger, by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, by truthful speech and the power of God, with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left, through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise, we are treated as imposters and yet are true." As unknown and yet well-known, as dying and behold we live, as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing everything. We've spoken to you freely, Corinthians, our heart is wide open. You are not restricted by us, but you are restricted in your own affections. In return, I speak as to children, widen your hearts also. The gospel has opened Paul's heart wide to accept people who rejected him, to accept people and love people who were not like him. And he's asking us to open our hearts wide as well. So Paul's overarching theme is, I think, following Jesus has led me into a rugged, wide-open life, a difficult but joyful life. So if you want to know whether or not I'm really a follower of Jesus and whether my claims to faith are sincere, look at my life. Paul doesn't point to his education or his experience or his skills. He doesn't point to his knowledge of the Bible. His credibility lies in his willingness to suffer for the gospel. He basically says, I've not chosen the way of comfort and ease. I haven't chosen um, the way of success in the world's eyes I haven't taken shortcuts. I haven't chosen the way to power and status and wealth and personal safety. I've chosen the way of Christ, and if I could go back, I would do it all over again. That's what he's saying. So I think what we need to see from this, from these verses here is that being an ambassador for Christ, being a reconciler, an ambassador, is hard work. It's hard work. It's risky. It's exhausting. It involves plunging into the mess and chaos of human lives so that people can find peace and new life with God. It's not easy, but there's no better life to live. So what kind of risks are we talking about? Paul gives us a very thorough list. But rather than go through Paul's list of hardships, which we could, and explain what all these mean and how we suffer these things today... I'd like to share with you a vision. And it comes from a book that you've probably never heard of. I know I had not never heard of it until a few years ago. It's a, it's a book by a guy named Wes Seeliger. It's called Western Theology. It's a really, it's, it's like a 45-year-old, very obscure, strange book. It's illustrated. It's not for kids. I don't know. It's just, it's an odd book. But it helped me tremendously this past week understanding, to understand the way of life That God is calling us to, and I want to share with you an excerpt from this book. And I kind of, I, I took some liberties with the analogy and with the language to kind of make this my own. But what you're, what you're about to hear came mostly from this guy, from him, from this book. I'd like to share it with you now. There are two visions of life, and two kinds of people. The first see life as a possession to be carefully guarded. They are called settlers. The second see life as a wild Wide open, fantastic gift. They are called pioneers. These two kinds of people have given rise to two kinds of theology. Settler theology and pioneer theology. The setting for both theologies is the Wild West. Excuse me. I want you to remember this. Ma'am. In settler theology, the church is the courthouse. The courthouse is the center for town life, and everything that matters happens there. It stays locked most of the week. It has very few visitors, and when visitors do come, they are looked upon with suspicion. Within the walls of this building, records are kept and taxes are collected. Bad guys are put on trial. The courthouse serves as the settler's symbol for law and order and stability, but most of all, Security. In pioneer theology, the church is the covered wagon. It is a house on wheels, always on the move. The covered wagon is where the pioneers eat, sleep, fight, love, and die. It bears the marks of life and movement. It creaks. It is scarred with arrows and bandaged with bailing wire. It moves towards the future. The old wagon isn't comfortable, but the pioneers don't mind. They are more into adventure than comfort. In settler theology, God is the mayor. He lounges in an overstuffed chair in his courthouse office. He keeps the blinds drawn. No one ever sees him or really knows him, but since there is order and stability in the town, everyone assumes he's there. The mayor is predictable and on schedule. Peace and quiet are his main concerns. In pioneer theology, God is the trail boss. He's rough and rugged and full of life. He chews tobacco and drinks straight whiskey. I I didn't say that. The trail boss lives, eats, sleeps and fights with the pioneers. Their endurance is his main concern. Without the trail boss, the wagon would never move. The trail boss often gets down into the mud with the pioneers to help push the wagon which gets stuck pretty regularly. He pokes and prods the pioneers when they get soft and he and when they want to turn back. In settler theology, Jesus is the sheriff. He's the guy who is sent by the mayor to enforce the rules. He has nice feathered hair, he drinks milk, and he outdraws the bad guys. He decides who gets thrown in jail. In pioneer theology, Jesus is the scout. He rides out ahead to find out which way the pioneers should go. He faces all the dangers of trail, of trail life and, and uh, suffers every hardship and is constantly attacked by Indians By watching and listening to the scout, those on the trail learn what it means to be a pioneer. In settler theology, the Holy Spirit is the saloon singer. Her job is to entertain the settlers. They come to her when they feel lonely or when life gets dull or dangerous, and the saloon singer makes everything okay again. In pioneer theology, the Holy Spirit is the buffalo hunter. He rides along with the covered wagon and provides fresh meat for the pioneers. Without this meat, they would die. The buffalo hunter is a strange character, sort of a wild man. The pioneers never can tell what he's going to do next. He scares the hell out of the settlers. He has a big black gun that goes off like a cannon. He rides into town on Sunday mornings to shake up the settlers. You see, every Sunday morning, the settlers have a little coffee and pastry social in the courthouse. And with his gun in hand, the buffalo hunter sneaks up to one of the courthouse windows and he fires a tremendous blast that rattles the whole courthouse. Men jump out of their seats. Women uh, scream. Babies start crying. Chuckling to himself, the buffalo hunter rides back to the wagon train, shooting up the town as he goes. In settler theology, the pastor is the banker. He locks up the values of the town in a safe He's well-respected. He has a gun, but he keeps it hidden in his desk. He feels that he and the sheriff have a lot in common. In pioneer theology, the pastor is the cook. He doesn't provide the meat. He just dishes up what the buffalo hunter provides. This is how he helps keep the wagon moving. He doesn't confuse his job with the scout or the buffalo hunter. He sees himself as just another pioneer who has learned to cook. His main job is to help the pioneers pioneer. And by the way, in our day and age, the settler pastor drives a Lexus, and the pioneer pastor drives a beat-up old pickup truck. In settler theology, the Christians are the settlers. They fear the unknown frontier. Their concern is to stay on good terms with the mayor and keep out of the scout's way. Safety first is their motto. In pioneer theology, the Christians are the pioneers. They are not afraid to take risks. They ride hard. They know how to use a gun when necessary. The pioneers actually feel sorry for the settlers and regularly invite them to life on the trail. The pioneers die with their boots on. My friends, are we settlers or are we pioneers? Are we building a courthouse or are we riding in a covered wagon ready to go where the scout has gone? Jesus, the pioneer of our faith, he endured the cross for joy. What joy? Is it not the joy of one sinner being reconciled to God? Is it not the joy in heaven over one sinner who repents? Are we willing to become poor so that many can become rich? Are we willing to endure hard work and sleepless nights and no appreciation and even harsh treatment so that people far from God can be reconciled to him? Are we willing to die to ourselves, to our selfish ambitions and our desire for comfort and our longing for acceptance and praise so that people can be shaken up by the buffalo hunter and follow the scout and find life with the trail boss? You know, as good as that analogy is, of course it has flaws, but you know what? One of the biggest flaws, he left out a really important piece. The gospel. So here's my version of the gospel in the Wild West, and this is my conclusion today. In settler theology, the gospel is your badge. You see, when you heard the gospel, the sheriff gave you an honorary plastic badge with the date of your swearing-into-heaven ceremony. The badge says that you heard the message and prayed a prayer, so you're saved. You're a reserve officer now, policing the behaviors of other people in the town. The settlers don't wear their badges in public. That would make them embarrassed. They keep them safe and hidden in a lockbox somewhere, and as long as you show your badge to the mayor when you die, you'll be honored for your faithful service and loyalty. In pioneer theology, the gospel is your boots. And no pioneer goes anywhere without their boots on. When they wake up in the morning, the first thing they do is put their boots on. They remember that they're saved by grace, not by faithful service or loyalty. The boots protect your feet as as they tread in the rugged terrain on the trail. The boots cover every step of the trail, up the hills, through the valleys, across the thorny, difficult ground. A pioneer's boots are the most important thing they wear, and the pioneers die with their boots on. So who's ready to go pioneering with me? Who's ready? We are ready to forge a new trail. The scout has gone ahead. He's calling us to join him. The buffalo hunter's given us all the meat we need. He's shooting up the town, and the trail boss is by our side. Listen, this is, this is the last sermon I'm preaching on this stage. We're meeting here one more week. And and the person actually (laughs) who preached the last sermon at our old building in on the muskego Franklin border before we moved here, we sold our building there. We moved here to to be in a more urban location, and he's going to preach. He's going to have the honor of preaching the last sermon here at this building. And on May 14th, Lord willing, we're planning to be at the new location. Everything is pretty much. The chairs are set up. Everything is ready to go. We got a few things to tie off to pass inspections. And we'll be there. That doesn't mean we'll have arrived. That doesn't mean our work is done. That doesn't mean it's time to get soft and to take a break. (laughs) We're pioneers. We are a church on the move. That's our mission statement. We are on the move to redeem people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is who we are. And so on May 21st, we're going to gather together at the new location, Lord willing. And after the service, we're going to share a lunch together. And then we're going to go out into the community. Everyone who is, is able to. Kids, grandmas, grandpas, parents, teenagers. I'm going to have a teenager then. That's crazy to think about. And we are going to hand out about 2,000, in fact, I have one here, door hangers. They have our name on there. It's going to say we are here with our new address, our our URL, our website. When we meet on the back, it'll say be our guest and um, some other things on there. And we just want to let people know that we are finally here. We've been, listen, we've done, I figured out this last week, we've done well over 30 events in the community of West Dallas over the last three years. We've been in the community, in the schools, in the downtown area, talking to people, giving things away, loving people, being a blessing to people without expecting anything in return. That's, that's what we're going to continue to do. But on that day, we just want to go out and just blast the neighborhood with the news that God has been faithful. He's provided a new lo- permanent location for us, and we're going to invite them to join us. And So I just wanted you to know, just to set that date aside, if you can be there. But on Mother's Day, it's in two weeks on Mother's Day, We're really excited to be worshiping together in the new facility. If you don't know where it is or if you haven't been there in a long time, you can go on our website, you can go on our Facebook page or Instagram, and you can see pictures and stuff like that. That's not all that important, but we need your help is what I'm saying. We need your help, all right? We're all in this together. We're a body, every single one of us, no matter what you do here, no matter even if you're just checking us out or... or, are new to this whole thing. We are family. Every single one of us has equal value in God's eyes. We're a family. And we all have ownership of what God has called us to be as his church. An outpost for the glory of God. That's who we are. We're ambassadors for Christ. God is making his appeal through us, ordinary people. We are pioneers who are called to life on the trail, not life in the courthouse. We're a church on the move. Please join me in prayer. Our Lord and Savior Jesus, we thank you that you've gone ahead of us and that you were the first pioneer. You are the author of our faith. You are the first and the last. And we find our hope in you. We find our identity in you. We find our new life in you. God, our Father, we we thank you for your goodness, for your grace, that while we were still sinners, Jesus died for us. When we were weak, Jesus died for us. We thank you that you accept us, not because of what we've done, but because of what Jesus has done. And through faith, not by works, through faith, You declare us not guilty. We are righteous in your eyes. We thank you for the gospel today, and we ask that through us and through other churches in our area that you would continue to build this gospel movement, this kingdom movement, that you would draw more and more people into your family through the preaching of your word, through the lives of your people, through our love, through our unity, through our message. God, make us more like Jesus today. Make us excited about where you're going, about where you're leading us and what you're doing and what you've already done. Help us to stand firm on your promises and to put our trust in you, our Lord and Savior Jesus. Is in his name we pray. Amen.